I'm a Navy veteran. I served 20 years. I saved lives. I was a Navy corpsman. We take care of our own, except now. My TRICARE is not acceptable anymore. They took it away. And they claimed that there was no TRICARE here in Carson City. Told me that I have to go to Dayton to somebody I've never even heard of. I have Huntington's disease. I'm in stage four. If you listened to our last two Best of Bernie episodes, you might have noticed that Bernie has been mixing it up. He still commands the largest crowds in the race, even if the media shows little interest in the anatomy of a Bernie rally. But in addition to talking to thousands of people at large rallies, Bernie is also focusing on smaller, more intimate town halls, where Americans can share their stories of financial struggle, healthcare worries, inadequate housing, and a million other stresses that, in a more just system, would never rise to the level of a crisis. These town halls have produced some of the most compelling moments from the campaign, including this story from John Weigel, a 20-year Navy veteran who attended a town hall in Carson City, Nevada, earlier this month. After losing access to his medical benefits and facing bills of well over $100,000, John said that he doesn't see a way out. I can barely take care of myself, and I do not have the energy to fight these people. And every time I get on the phone with them, they piss me off, and and I can't deal with them. And I was supposed to be given health care, free health care for life, for being a veteran for 20 years. And this is what they've done. They've taken away my TRICARE for life that was coming, the deductions were coming out of my check automatically, and somehow they managed to screw it up. And when you try to screw, try to tell them how it works here, and that I was, you know, the Carson Medical Group was part of TRICARE, they told me I was full of shit. John, let me Excuse ask you, me. you gave, John just gave me this, uh, John Weigel. John, I'm looking at, at a bill, and it says account balance $139,000. What is that about? It's because somehow, after the fact, they claim that my TRICARE, I chose to end it, which I didn't. It was coming out of my check, you know, as part of my allotment that was set up in uh, 2003 when I first retired from the military after doing 20 years. And and so now they're saying that, uh, you know, I, I didn't re-sign or do something or something. How are you going to pay off? I can't. I can't. I'm going to kill myself. I don't, oh, John, it. stop it. You're not going to kill yourself. I can't deal with this. I have Huntington's disease. Do you know how hard that is? You know, you probably don't, do you? I can't drive. I can barely take care of myself. All right, let's start later at the end of the meeting, okay? Okay. Okay. The next day, Bernie was clear that the situation John finds himself in is unacceptable for any American, much less a veteran. Before he said anything, he had given me a, um, a piece of paper, and I glanced down at the piece of paper, and it said it was a bill for $139,000. $139,000. And when he got up and spoke, and here is somebody who put his life on the line uh, to defend this country, a veteran, dealing with a terrible, terrible illness, and what was obviously very unsettling is when he used the word suicide, that he was just overwhelmed with, um, you know, with the pressures of having to pay the bill, 
He doesn't, as I understand it, he told me, he doesn't answer his phone very much because there are bill collectors uh, calling him up every day. And, um, you know, this should not be going on in America, not for a veteran, not for any person in this country. And it is beyond comprehension that under the current health care system, somewhere like a half a million people go bankrupt every year because of medical bills. So uh, it was a very painful situation. Uh, to hear that, to see what he is going through, but to know that hundreds of thousands of other people are going through similar type crises. And as infuriating as John's story is, it's just one drop in the ocean of misery that our current healthcare system is creating. It turns out that going broke for essential medical care in the wealthiest country in the world makes people angry. And that anger finds a supportive audience and Bernie Town Hall after Bernie Town Hall all over the country. The drug prices are so high that I have an incident from the military that the military government does not cover my medication. It costs me $900 for five pills every month. $900. I serve this country. I stood in the war for this country, and I need to know, what are you going to do about This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and politics that are driving the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, and I'm coming to you from campaign headquarters in Washington, D.C. Last week, Bernie's campaign reached a historic milestone. More than one million individual donors have donated to the Bernie Sanders campaign since he launched seven months ago. The fastest any candidate has been able to reach that number ever in the history of the United States of America. That also makes Bernie the only candidate with more individual contributions than Donald Trump himself. And who's giving to Bernie? Folks who know firsthand what it means to work at and be exploited by companies like Walmart, Target, Starbucks, and Amazon. And of course, none of those contributions come from lobbyists, corporations, or healthcare and oil execs, something that quite a few other candidates in this race can't say. Now, of course, the campaign needs those donations to pay for our on-the-ground organizing, advertising, and media output, including this podcast. But Bernie's massive pool of supporters is significant in another way, too. And that's his unique capacity to bring together Americans to fight for populist change, even and especially when government institutions are resisting it. A question that Bernie gets asked a lot is how will he pass the most progressive agenda ever through a hostile Congress, not to mention prevail in the inevitable court battles that will follow. Now, let's set aside for a moment the fact that Bernie gets challenged on this more than perhaps any of his Democratic rivals, despite the fact that, as we saw with the Obama administration, a Republican-controlled Senate will try to block any Democratic agenda, no matter how moderate. But unlike the other candidates, Bernie actually has a plausible answer, one that's backed up by evidence, like his huge donor list. And that answer is that he would tap the source of real progressive power in this country, the people themselves. 
This came up in recent interviews Bernie did with Kitty Halper and Matt Taibbi on their new Rolling Stone podcast, Useful Idiots, and with Kyle Kalinske, host of Secular Talk. You talk a lot about movement politics, and of course your, your motto is not me, us. Um, what will the movement have to do when you're president to um, keep you responsible to the movement, to keep your feet to the fire, which is something I'm sure you want the movement to do, but what, what are they going to have to do just so we can prepare? Well, Katie, we are living in an unprecedented moment in American history, and it's not just the racism and the pathological lying and the, uh, and the sexism and the homophobia of Donald Trump. It goes beyond that. And that is, and I'm the only candidate, I think, who talks about this consistently. And I know, you know, Matt, you guys have been writing about this for years. You, you're some of the few people in America who write about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And that is we are looking not only at the incredible greed of the corporate elite, but the corruption of the corporate elite and the power of the corporate elite. So you're talking about Wall Street. You're talking about six banks that have assets equivalent to half of the GDP in this country, more than $10 trillion, banks that borrow money at 2.5% and charge people 25%, 30% interest rates on their credit cards. You're talking about a drug, the drug companies who are involved in price fixing. They're now you know, under assault in court cases right now for selling opiates to the American people when they knew that those opiates were addictive. Uh, you're talking about the drug, the the insurance industry charging us the highest prices in the world. You're talking about the fossil fuel industry knowingly, knowingly producing a product that is destroying the planet. What can you say about that? So you're talking about corruption. You're talking about greed. You're talking about incredible power. And when we talk about the debate last night and every other debate that I have been on, these are issues we're not allowed to talk about. No commentator, no moderator has ever asked me about the power of the corporate elite, the corruption of the corporate elite, and how you deal with that issue. And obviously, that is at the heart and soul of what this campaign is about. So, Katie, to answer your question, what I have said, and I think you've heard me say this a million times, is no president, not Bernie Sanders, anybody else, can do it alone. Because these people have unlimited amounts of money. They control the corporate media. They have unbelievable power. The only way we defeat them is with the president of the United States who is prepared to stand up to them. But behind that president has got to be an unprecedented grassroots movement of millions of people who are telling the insurance companies, sorry, everybody in this country will have health care as a human right, telling the fossil fuel industry, sorry, your short-term profits are not more important than the future of this planet, telling the drug companies, sorry, We're not going to die because we cannot afford the outrageous prices of your medicine. Only way we accomplish that is with a mass movement. That is what this campaign is about. And what is the mass movement going to look like? Does that mean protests? Does that mean running for office? That means mobilizing millions of people to run for office, absolutely, to make it clear in a way that does not happen right now. I'll give you an example. Uh, Last month, I was in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, challenging McConnell to bring up gun safety legislation to bring up the bills passed in the House that raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour, uh, to bring up uh, the legislation passed in the House, which will do the best that we can to prevent Russian intervention in our elections. Kentucky, it turns out, is a poor state. 
it is a state where people are struggling. And yet you got a senator there from Kentucky, not only McConnell, but Rand Paul, in a poor state that believe in massive tax breaks for the rich and cuts to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, education, environmental protection. How does that happen? How do you have a poor state, a struggling state, electing people who represent the interests of the rich and the powerful and ignore the needs of the vast majority of the people in that state? And what the political revolution is about is going into those states. And I've been into Kentucky, got a lot of support there, going into West Virginia, another poor state, going into so-called red states and blue states and rallying the working class of this country. Here is the main point that I try to make all over this country. The ideas that I am talking about, raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour, health care for all, making public colleges and universities tuition-free, canceling student debt, dealing with climate change aggressively. These are not radical ideas. These are ideas that the working class of this country supports. Problem is, we have a lot of people who are not voting. We've got to get them voting. We have a lot of young people who are very, very progressive, who are not involved in the political process. We've got to get them involved. And the only way you do that is by having the ideas, the movement that brings them into the political process. And that's what we are working on day after day right now. And in conversation with Kyle Kalinske, Bernie did not shy away from the idea of endorsing progressive challengers to Democrats who oppose policies like Medicare for All. So let's say hypothetically... You win. President Bernie Sanders is in the White House. You go to do Medicare for all. Let's be kind to the Democratic Party here and say that only 25 percent of of your Democratic colleagues oppose Medicare for all. Is President Bernie Sanders willing to use the bully pulpit to try to make them fall in line and even go as far as supporting primary challengers against Democrats who are going to obstruct not only your agenda, but the agenda of the American people. Absolutely. I mean, mean, I've said this a million times. I believe that the agenda that I am fighting for is an agenda supported by the overwhelming majority of working people. And I think if we have the chance to explain what that agenda is, you get even more Republican support than people think possible. Nobody in America or very few people think you give tax breaks to billionaires and cut Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid, which is exactly the agenda of the Republican Party. Nobody thinks, well, I should say very few people think that climate change is a hoax, which is what the leadership of the Republican Party is about. And in the same sense with the Democratic Party, among Democrats, overwhelming support for a Medicare for all single payer program overwhelming support to raise the minimum wage to a living wage, make public colleges and universities tuition-free, cancel all student debt, demand that large corporations and the wealthy stop paying their fair share of taxes. So to answer your question, as president of the United States, what I will fight for is the implementation of that agenda, and I am prepared to go to every state in this union and rally the American people around that agenda to put pressure on their representatives, whether they are Democratic or Republican. And your question is, would I oppose in a primary battle Democrats who are not supportive of that agenda? The answer is absolutely yes.
Bernie unveiled a plan for affordable housing every bit as detailed and transformational as his plans for healthcare, climate change, criminal justice, and education. Now, nationwide, healthcare consistently ranks as Americans' top political priority. But the cost of housing is also very much on Americans' minds. Some 11 million Americans spend more than half their paycheck on rent. Millennials in particular are affected, spending about 45% of our income on rent, or an average of 93,000 by the age of 30. That's way higher than the inflation-adjusted total for older generations at the same stage of life. And according to the Department of Housing and Urban Development, more than half a million Americans are homeless, something that Donald Trump has lately taken notice of in typical fashion by calling for demolishing tent cities, cracking down with police, and potentially just incarcerating the homeless. Bernie's plan could not be more different. It invests $1.5 trillion in the Affordable Housing Trust Fund to build and update affordable housing around the country. It pressures state and local governments to remove restrictive zoning ordinances that often serve as de facto tools of segregation. And breaking most daringly from the rest of the Democratic PAC, it institutes nationwide rent control. But I'll let the man himself explain. Under this plan, we will invest more than $32 billion over the next five years to end homelessness in America. We're going to end this nightmare where in city after city we see people sleeping out on the streets. We've got to end that from a moral perspective. That is not what America is about. And in addition to building the housing units that we need to house the homeless, we also understand that we must provide critical outreach services to those who are experiencing chronic homelessness. Under this plan, we will invest $70 billion to repair and expand our dilapidated public housing stock. I could tell you that in many parts of this country where there is public housing, cities and communities and states have not had the money to upgrade that housing. Elevators are broken. Rats are running all over the public housing units. And we intend to adequately fund and help communities all over this country retrofit that public housing. Public housing residents should no longer be forced to live in unhealthy and unsafe conditions because of a massive underinvestment in these facilities. Under our plan, we will provide $50 billion in grants for states, cities, and towns to establish community land trusts that will enable over a million households to purchase affordable homes over the next 25 years. Land trust housing enables people to enjoy the advantages of home ownership while keeping housing perpetually affordable. When I was mayor of Burlington, Vermont, we were the first municipality in the country to implement a community land trust. We were the very first. And this concept has been so successful that it is now being utilized throughout the country and, in fact, in countries all over the world. At a time when the people in communities 
throughout our country are seeing massive rent increases. I want to congratulate the states of California, New York, and Oregon for recently passing rent control laws which begin to address the crisis of affordable housing. <clears throat> yeah. Now the bad news is that in America today, 32 states preempt or limit the ability of communities to establish rent control or stabilization rules to protect the American people against excessive increases in rent. In other words, you have communities that want to do the right thing and you got states overriding those communities. It is clear to me, therefore, that in the midst of this national housing emergency, we need federal policy which protects tenants from the greed we are currently seeing in the real estate industry. Under my plan, we will establish a national rent control standard, capping annual rent increases throughout the country at no more than one and a half times the rate of inflation or 3%, whichever is higher. Bernie doesn't often talk about himself, preferring to focus on policies and how they affect others. His message discipline, that is what PR types call his ability to stay on topic, is legendary to the point that some cable news personalities have tried to label his consistency as boring. Bernie's response, <clears throat> quote, should we ever achieve justice, I promise I'll write some new speeches. But one side effect of the senator's focus is that we don't always get glimpses of Bernie's more personal side, which is why I was so struck by this interview with Maria Hinojosa, host of NPR's Latino USA. Maria wanted to know why, given the tough nature of the campaign trail, Bernie opted to run again. Honestly, Senator, I don't know why you would want to do this. I'm just like, like, this is so exhausting. See, if I told you the truth. And you better tell me the truth. <laughs> I guess I have seven grandchildren. I want them to be able to grow up in a country which is a good country and a just country and a country which is not ravaged by climate change and so forth and so on. That's why I'm running. That's the simple truth of it. So tell me about the kids, like your grandkids, because I, I realize I don't really, like, I don't have an image of Bernie. Oh, he's a doting grandfather. Ooh, tell doting, me more. A doting. Um, what does that look like? Well, I've got four kids, one of them in New Hampshire, uh, one of them now in Arizona, two in Burlington, Vermont, and I got seven grandchildren, uh, three in New Hampshire, four in Vermont, and... Uh, what can I tell you? They are the most beautiful grandchildren in the entire world. Never heard that I mean, that's before. just the fact. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to argue the point, but they are. Not like you're much above average, but, <laughs> uh, What about them brings you joy? I mean, you have yeah, four I'll kids. Tell you, I mean, don't tell anybody, but I kind of like children more than adults. They're, uh, but don't tell anybody that, all right? You won't say I said that. I won't it's say Probably that. cost me some votes, but the children don't vote. But... Um, you know, kids are, what I like about them is that they're honest. Um, you know, when they get involved in things, they do it with all of their energy. You know, they play and they relate to each other and everything is a big deal. 
And they haven't learned to be phonies. And, you know, it's kind of nice. So there's a lot of phonies in your line of work. <laughs> and so now I'm seeing I, this. I would say that is a major understatement. <laughs> but I'm seeing the kind of Bernie, the genuine Bernie, who's talking about his grandkids. And I'm like, I can see that now. So why does that Bernie want to be hanging out and playing a game where you know that there's a lot of this, you know, politicians? They're, they. Well, I'll tell you why. You know, um, my wife and I thought long and hard about whether we should run or not. And you, on Mondays, we said yes, and Tuesdays, we said no, and Wednesday, yes, and Thursday, no. And we knew, you know, we're not children, and we knew exactly what we get into in terms of the kind of attacks, not just against me, against my family, all of the ugliness and lunacy that's out there. But we decided to do it for two reasons. Number one, it is absolutely imperative that we defeat the most dangerous president uh, maybe in the history of the United States, somebody who was a racist, a sexist, a homophobe, a xenophobe, a religious bigot, among other things, and who's a pathological liar. So this guy cannot be allowed to be reelected. And I have concluded, along with some other people, that in fact we are the strongest campaign to defeat Donald Trump. Can other people defeat Donald Trump? I think so. But I think actually we go into this thing as maybe the strongest candidate. So that's number one. And number two, the other reason for running is that I think the time is long overdue, and this goes beyond Donald Trump, to transform our economy and our government and create a nation, a government that works for all of us and not just wealthy, powerful, special interests. So you got massive income and wealth inequality. You got millions of people who are struggling. You got 87 million people don't have any health care. You got all kinds of young people can't afford to go to college or are leaving school deeply in debt. You got all kinds of sexism and racism and a criminal justice system which is broken, an immigration system which is broken. And then, on top of all that, if that's not enough, you got the global crisis of climate change, which the scientists tell us if we don't turn this around, you ain't gonna have much of a planet left for our kids and our grandchildren. Other than that, we're doing pretty good. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, that's why I'm running, because I think you gotta address those issues. I was one of those people who, when Donald Trump announced, I said he he could do this. Did you? Oh, well, yes. You were one of the few. Yeah, and people kind of dismissed me. Yeah, right. And I was like, no, 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 he could do this because being a Mexican immigrant out in the United States of America and just kind of hearing, you know, because this kind of anti-immigrant thing, which is what he's running on, yes. obviously, yep. it didn't just start yesterday, right. right? I mean, it's been around for a long time. It's been really seeping into our psyche for the last 50 years, certainly. But I want to ask you then, Senator, um, how do you think that this happened, that he in fact did get elected? I will tell you why. Now, I may be wrong, but I'll give you my best shot. I think it's, you know, some. I'm, I'm going to upset a lot of your listeners right now, but I will say that I think it's not so much that Trump won, but the Democrats lost. Mm. And by that, I mean the Democratic Party over a period of years has evolved into a West Coast party, into a, a East Coast party, a party of the upper middle class, a party which has become very dependent on the wealthy and large corporations for campaign contributions. And in the midst of all of that, they forgot what FDR was about, what even Truman was about, and that is being a party of the working class of this country, having the courage to stand up for working people 
and take on big money interest. So what has happened is that year after year, you see in America, you see in the Midwest, people working longer hours for lower wages. You are seeing increased, massively increased income and wealth inequality. So workers all over this country, they're working two or three jobs, and then they see three people on top own more wealth than the bottom half of American society. You got people out there who can't afford childcare. They can't afford uh, to send their kids to college. They can't afford health care. They're paying 50% of their incomes in housing. And you know what they're saying, Maria? They're saying, who cares about me? Who cares about me? And then Trump comes along and says, you know what? I'm listening to you. And you know what the cause of your problem is? I will tell you. It's the immigrants. Or it's the gays. Or it's the... Muslims. The Muslims. Mexicans. Or whatever they go, The Mexicans. Whoever it is. And that is what demagogues always do. If someday we look back and mark a turning point when the United States and countries around the world finally began to take climate change seriously and act to stop it, 2019 might be that year. And if it is, then the efforts of young people to force older generations to act will be a key factor. This past week, an estimated 4 million people took to the streets and likely the largest climate protest in history. Bernie spoke at one of these climate strikes in Greensboro, North Carolina. And what the scientists have told us is that not only is climate change real, caused by human activity, it is already today doing devastating harm to this country and countries all over the world. And anybody with eyes and ears knows that. We all saw what happened to the Bahamas recently. We all saw what happened to Puerto Rico two years ago, the devastation that was caused. We all saw what happened to New Orleans and to Charleston in terms of unprecedented floods. We know about the droughts and the rising sea levels and the floods that are taking place all over the world. But more importantly than understanding what is happening today is to listen to the scientists in terms of what they are saying for the future. And what they are saying is that if we do not get our act together and aggressively, aggressively transform our energy system away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energies, if we do not do that within the next 12 years, there will be irreparable, irreparable harm and damage done to our country and countries all over the world. So right now, what this issue is about, to my mind, is a moral issue. And that is we have and must accept the responsibility of not allowing this planet for our children, grandchildren, and future generations to be a planet which is increasingly uninhabitable and unhealthy. We must not allow that to happen. Earth is our only planet we must preserve. And I think more and more Americans understand that. 
But the obstacle in our way is a fossil fuel industry which is more interested in their short-term profits than in the future of our planet. And what you are doing today and what people all over our country and all over the world are doing is exactly the right thing. You are developing an international grassroots movement that says there is nothing more important than saving the planet. And we are seeing results already. We are seeing just the other day the University of California system has voted to divest its pension funds and its endowment funds from fossil fuels. And we're seeing that spread all over the country. Pop quiz. What is the only time you will likely hear someone consider bringing criminal charges against corporate titans on cable news? Answer, when Bernie Sanders goes on MSNBC's Climate Forum. In the midst of climate strikes and once-in-a-lifetime storms every year or so, Bernie's point is clear. How should we respond to an industry that knowingly produces a product that is destroying our future, suppresses evidence, and funds misinformation all in the name of short-term profits? You take them to court and hold them accountable. What do you do? What do you do? And I want you all to think about it. Because the answers are not so simple, but I have my ideas. What do you do with an industry who for years spent, what, tens of millions of dollars uh, into phony think tanks, corporately run think tanks, putting stooges up on television telling the American people, well, the evidence is not clear whether climate change is real or it's not real. They knew that it was real. Their own scientists told them that it was real. What do you do to people who lied in a very bold-faced way, lied to the American people, lied to the media? How do you hold them accountable? How do you hold fossil fuel executives who knew that they were destroying the planet, but kept on doing it. We will hold them accountable. Let me, let me just, we're going to go to question you and H so quickly, but are you talking about civil, so there are, right now there are lawsuits precisely on this, that's on the civil side, but are you, you seem to be indicating criminal accountability. I'm not a lawyer, and I'll need a good attorney general to help me out on this one. But this is what I think. It is one thing, you're producing a product, and you produce the product, and then you learn that the product that you're producing is killing people, right? Which is the case, say, with the Purdue and uh, Johnson & Johnson opioid mm -hmm. manufacturers. The evidence is pretty clear that in terms of Purdue and Johnson & Johnson, they learned at a certain point that the opioids they were producing were causing an epidemic and people were dying. And you know what they did? They continued to produce it and hire more salesmen to go out and sell it. What do you do with those folks? Now, because you have in this country, which is the subject for another discussion, a corrupt criminal justice system, CEOs and millionaires don't go to jail. 
people go to jail, kids go to jail for selling marijuana. But if you kill hundreds of people or thousands of people and you're a CEO and a billionaire, you don't go to jail. That's the nature of the system in America. It's a system I intend to change. But you ask me a question, and I can see the tone in your voice is, you're not sure. But what do you do if executives knew that the product they were producing was destroying the planet? And they continue to do it. Do you think that that might be subject to criminal charges? I don't know. Oh! I'm not running for president. <laughs> um, well, I think it's something we should look at. That's it for this week. Let us know what you think at hearttheburn at berniesanders.com or send us a tweet with the hashtag hearttheburn. If you haven't already, please take a moment to rate, review, or like us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening. As always, transcripts will be up soon. Till next time. <laughs>